welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. My name is Matthew Girardo. I'm your host, as per. Uh, by the way, this is funded by the Arts Council. This is part of our uh, year-long funding that we've got from Arts Council England. This podcast is a conversation between me and John Walter. And so often with these podcasts, I'm the least articulate person in the room, but particularly with John, he speaks so well about his practice and listening back to it and doing the editing... It's just such an interesting conversation. We, we speak about so much. We speak about the jester figure. He talks about the origin of the word zaniness. He's got super interesting things to say about architecture. He teaches architecture and he, he's got interesting things to say about the teaching of architecture and art and the importance of scale and different techniques. Um, he talks about his Hayward touring show, Shonky, which is opening soon. He also talks about a long-term project called Capsid, which is a long-term research project about viruses. And he gets into some absolutely deep level biology, which is really interesting to hear. And he, yeah, makes it really easy to understand as well. We talk about the queer art of failure. We talk about bad painting. But the first thing we talk about is I read out a list of characters that John has invented through his practice. I want okay, yeah, to start with very, very specific thing because I, okay. I've immersed myself. You have a lot of work. <laughs> and not only do you have a lot of work, but you have a lot of work very easily available to view. Yes. And I think that's interesting for like loads of reasons. Anyway, but, but it, it meant that what happened was I'm going to load up. I have like loads of notes, so Amazing. forgive me for looking at my phone. But I'm going to read you a list of <laughs> character names that have cropped up in your work. <laughs> um, so there's, I found these. Barbara Travada. <laughs> yeah. Ken Jester. Yeah. Masonic Yoga. Masonic Yoda, Yoda, Johnny Bagelhead, Shitney Cuntstone, mm. that's a very famous one, Mimsy, Pistachio, mm. Shufty Cuntstone, yeah. Bonnie Raitt, Mario Bazzi, <laughs> Grunter, Hashtag, Miso Leroy, The Fabergé <laughs> Fellatio Dyspepsia, mm. Piggy Guggenheim, Lady mm. Earth, Strawberry Shortcake, Yoda of Blowjobs, another mm, Yoda. Yeah, related. Glory Hole Geisha, Zipper, Bummy Pete, Goat Guy, yeah. uh, Lezzy, who I want to note serves donuts from a cardboard toilet. <laughs> and you even have a, a, a name for your, maybe this is your house now or, or, or where you used oh, to live, yeah. but the Tandoori Cottage. Yeah, that was Belfron. Yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. yeah. So maybe we can start with that. Like, <laughs> yeah. how did you start naming all these characters and where, did they, where do they come from? Um, are we recording? That's yeah. amazing. Um, where do they come from? They sort of come as nicknames. It's like they need, I need to distinguish them from each other. Or like, so what's a, where's a good example? Um, some of them you listed were from Leicester when I did this thing called The News and I had six characters. So I made six costumes and they were based on some drawings I'd made. And really it's like you draw a blob or a thing and you have to differentiate it from that thing. So you sort of give it a different colour or a different shape, but you maybe give it a different name. And then as you as you name them, they sort of take on things but it's also a kind of uh, like things you overhear yeah. so Mario Balotelli somebody was chatting to me about football which I, you know if, if you know me I know nothing about <laughs> and then I was like but that's a good name and then they were really like really into him and re- they were like talking about the poetry of it all and I was like well yeah well that one can be called Mario Balotelli <laughs> Um, so they sort of land or like Bonnie Wright I was listening to a lot of Bonnie Wright uh, and then okay. I had this big bit of orange fabric and she's ginger so it made sense that she would be bonnie right yeah <laughs> um shinny cunstone was like a, just a, an in joke with a friend okay of what could be the worst name you could have 
Um, and and we were just, I was just winding her up and then started calling her Shitney Cuntstone. <laughs> and then later on, I needed a character. I was like, but hang on, what if I actually was Shitney? <laughs> and then Shitney's taken on this life of, and all of them take on a life of their own. Yeah, sure. What are the, I mean, Shitney Cuntstone is the one that I definitely had seen multiple works yeah, by and yeah. including. Are there any other characters that have kind of reappeared? Um, well, Yoda of Blowjobs has appeared in different guises, in different drawings and things. Um, the Cuntstone family, Shifty oh, right. being the... There's also Grandma Cuntstone. Oh. There's there's a lot of... But they're not written down, maybe. They're in the songs. Sure, yeah. So you get lots of other names crop up. Um, who's a recurring character? There were a lot... There were some characters that I used in, in, in America when I was doing a residency there that I bought into Alien Sets Club a bit. But um, often they just get invented for like a year or, or yeah. a project and then they go again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They're like mascots or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I felt. I mean, I wanted to use them to then kind of go into talking about your costume work because mm. you use a lot of costumes and mm. you use them in an interesting way. So it's quite a complex kind of set of stuff, isn't it? Mm. But But... I wanted to talk about the relationship between them and like dragging because mm, there's yeah. there's a quote on your website and I'd kind of already noted down that it's like it's not drag it's not gender based drag basically yeah it's like the things aren't necessarily human or they're not mm. even it's not about their gender or it's not even really about their identity it's like it's costume for kind of costume sake or something yeah and there's a good quote about gestured. Drag. Yeah, it's a form of drag that's gestured as opposed to gendered. Yeah. And that's only something I worked out recently in that, um, I mean, drag isn't something that particularly interests me, this whole craze for RuPaul. That, I mean, I, I, I watch it, sure, but yeah. um, the, the gender aspect of it is not interesting to me because I, I don't need that personally, whereas I do need to disguise myself as funny. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm actually really serious and quite boring. So I have to make up these personas socially. And uh, they sort of grew out of costumes that didn't have names. I suppose, what, I mean, I always dress, dressed up. There was a dressing up box at home, famously. And my mum almost got rid of me at four years old because I was wearing a green tulle hat in the shopping centre and she was so embarrassed. <laughs> she tried to lose me. <laughs> but she didn't. Um... So And then when I was doing my undergrad at Oxford, I started wearing costumes to parties. Mm, okay. So I dressed up as a red Teletubby. <laughs> and I also dressed up in this kind of Mike Kelly flasher coat that when you opened it up, it had animals in it. And these were really excuses to take the emphasis off me and put the emphasis on the costume. Yeah, sure. So immediately people treat you differently because you've clowned. But it's not really clowning, it's... Je well, the way I've rationalised it best at the moment is that it's gesturing mm. in the sense of... Um, it, so, Sian Nagai writes about the zany and the zanny and this kind of buffoon clown who's an itinerant worker, who's an artist, essentially. And and so it's really sending up what who I am, who you are, who we all are in this game of looking at things and talking about them, I suppose. And then, then you can have the conversation, because if you look like the fool, everybody uh, can ask you... Well, particularly people that aren't artists, if they come to a show and you're dressed like a fool, they can ask you very blunt questions because you've empowered them because you look like the div. <laughs> um, and then that's quite nice because they will feel comfortable... You yeah. put them at ease, essentially, in how ridiculous you look. 
So there's already, the, the ice has been broken, I suppose. I guess there's a few sides to your work. There's kind of quite a light, frivolous side. Mm. And then there's, I think, this seems like a more recent turn since um, your PhD in yeah. Alien Sex Club and then more recently Capsid. Yeah. You've, you've been approaching pretty directly like big topics, so like yeah. AIDS and HIV and, um, and the rise in HIV in young gay men in Britain. Is that yeah. particularly it? Yeah, that was the sort of background to Alien Sex Club, theoretically. So is that so? Was it a conscious decision to use this technique of kind of gesturing or to to approach a very serious topic? It, sort of circuitously. Okay. So um, so Alien Sex Club came about really through a process of having a a hunch that I wanted to do something about a sex club and it was called King's Cross Four Pound Sex Club but it never really became it didn't have a it didn't find a home you know sometimes you have a hunch you want to do something and you're trying to work out where it might live and then this title Alien Sex Club came then I was like well what's that and then there was an opportunity to explore it as a PhD practice based and then that I suppose that's how things locked into place. It was it, it it was I think all of those things were floating around separately, and mm. then maybe they've joined. And yeah, the, the the frivolous side is there, and I suppose the it, the subject matter has not always been clear until the past few years. You know, I've not been able to say very clearly what I'm looking at. Yeah, formally maybe, but not in terms of discourse and now it's very clear that there's these zones that I can use this way of working to look at yeah. and that's a bit of a shift so it, it's not just the, frivol- the frivolity of the costumes it's also a kind of humour generally where you've got cartooning there's a playfulness in the way things are handled that is in counterpoint to the tone of the subject yeah. and those two things can charge each other and then you can say something different than what's been said I suppose because I think if I had been asked before I looked back at the work online if mm. I'd been asked what was in your giant installation of Alien Sex Club at Ambika P3 mm. was that in 2015? yeah right. I would have said I would have talked about the maze like structure you mm. kind of recreated the kind of I don't know, yeah. you created a kind of version of a sex club, like yeah. this kind of darkened corridors and things. I'd have talked about the drawings. I, I always mm. love your kind of drawings. I'd have talked about videos. I'd have talked about tarot. So it was someone doing tarot mm. and then the chem jester who was serving drinks. Mm. I would not have remembered the mobile HIV right. testing yeah. laboratory. Yeah. Which, But yeah, I wouldn't have remembered this very, what seems to, now, to me now to be like a very big feature, kind of yeah. hiding in plain sight. yeah. Hiding in plain sight is a good way of putting it. Um, or uh, um, what's the other phrase I've used before? A smokescreen comp- comprised of the truth. I think that's how <laughs> Cedric Price puts it. Yeah. Um, well, the, the research was really into how you can represent HIV now and how it differs from the 80s and how post-minimal representations have dominated the discourse. So coming out of Felix Gonzalez Torres and going right through to Prem Sahib and how um, that way of representing things is over-familiar and thus needs reanimating in order Mm. to reanimate the discussion. And uh, using a maximalist aesthetic and spatial design as a way of intervening in that 
trend. And what is maximalism? That's ill-defined. Robert Pincus Witten talks about it in the 80s, but he really brings in people like Schnabel and um, sort of trans-avant-guardia painters who are using figuration and kind of old-fashioned handling of paint. So it's really quite ill-defined. Then Dougie Fields talks about it as minimalism with a plus, plus, plus. So it's also ripe for the taking. Um, And so the the idea was really to represent HIV as a very complex web of things where you couldn't look at things in isolation. The change in access to drugs and the pill burden associated with that uh, What's the, pill burden? So pill burden, in the, in the early 90s when treatment was just beginning to work, you could be on something like 40 pills a day, and now you could be on one. So that changes how visible the virus is if you're treated for it. You can It's privatised it, essentially, because you can hide being on treatment. Mm. And this has a lot of social implications. I mean, ASX Club was really looking at the social factors around HIV, and that was triggered by my own proximity to people living with HIV and my own fear of it as a gay man as a as a human but also kind of just trying to grapple with grapple with I mean it's shifted even since then really um cases of HIV have gone down like new new um new diagnoses have gone down for the first time in several years last year so there's been a, a shift and I oh, think it was really recent I've, I yeah, read that the other day yeah why is that is there a reason or? I think there's been a lot of people pushing for it my my project was one of those things but there's been a whole kind of grassroots looking particularly at chemsex so people using recreational drugs particularly crystal meth around um sex and risk associated with that and people trying to uh intervene in that and that's Mm. clearly working which is great also access to prep so the idea that you take a antiretroviral pill if you're negative and that if the virus enters your system there's already something to attack it oh wow okay so that's really going to replace condom use over time wow and that's not available yet on the nhs but a lot of people are on trials or are getting it through other means yeah and that's changing the dynamic so i mean just in talking i'm telling you a million things and the the, the challenge was how do you talk about all this at once Mm. and and the way i resolved that or the way i researched that was to use a maze as an emblem that could contain this multiplicity of things and there's this idea of a cruise maze in sex culture which isn't a real thing it's a it's a metaphor for a club um i mean it can be a real thing but it's never as exciting as a real maze (laughs) i mean i'd love it if hampton court maze yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) the best cruise maze in london hampton court maze but it it probably was in its day yeah sure yeah um (laughs) And and that we, it worked much better in Liverpool when it was really dark because it was in Camp and Furnace. Oh, yeah, in that big room that you see. Yeah, and it was really dank and, like, club-like. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I suppose it, it found me and I found it. I suppose it's, it, it's partly financially driven. Mm. I was like, I need to sort my finances out concurrently with this need to find this pr- place for this project. And this practice-based PhD thing presented itself to me. And I'd always poo-pooed PhDs. I was like, this is not something artists should do. Why did you think that? I think that's really interesting. Um, When I was at Slade doing my MA, all the PhD students were tossers. I mean, they were really (laughs) just hanging about having a smoke, doing nothing. And the work was not interesting. So I just thought it wasn't... it was not a thing to do. And I'd also met a few people that had really struggled with it and it had done their practice no good. 
But I did mine within architecture and that enabled me enough of a sidestep to not be navel-gazing at my practice all the time, but mm. to be using my practice to make a test for another thing. And I think that was my way of solving the problem. In the end, there is a chapter that uh, narrates how the work is made, but not it doesn't destroy my approach to making things, which was a good thing. What is your link to architecture? Uh, firstly, how did you get involved? How did you do your PhD through the yeah. architecture department? And secondly, do you do teaching at the AA sometimes? Yeah, yeah. I'm really... Um, I'm sure there's a phrase for people like me. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's an extension of all these activities, doing all these different activities, which is like you. You know, I'm a jack of all trades. It's like, what can I unlearn or how can I get out of my comfort zone? But also, I happened to hang out with a lot of architects, mm. partly through Bruce McLean, and his son's an architect, Will, and then I met his wife, Sam, and Victoria Watson, who ended up being one of my supervisors. So I just kind of entered that world naturally, and I think it suited my way of thinking about things holistically, and that maybe art could be functional, because I don't really believe in objects for their own sake. It's like, what can they do in terms of conversation or changing yeah all those sort of things and I would often get invited in to be a guest critic at the AA or things like this so over time it's it's not that I've converted to that I'm definitely not an architect okay but I've the the this the spatial design elements of the project looking at cruising the spaces of cruising how that's formalized into architectural scenarios was was why the the research could be based in architecture mm. and also what what I could bring from architectural discourse into art and what I could bring from art into architectural discourse. So it's about swapping information partly. Mm. And then um, now I co-teach with Sam Hardingham, uh, a diploma unit at the AA, which uh, I was talking with somebody about this the other day. I think that what I bring as somebody who's not native to the discipline is having to make analogies, like really having to stretch to make analogies, but Mm. that being a useful... You know, it's all critical thinking. It's all the same questions, ultimately. So Sam can bring, you know, very specific architectural things, and I can bring, well, what the fuck, you know, or why haven't you thought about it this way? Mm. um, And and also I'm learning, so it feels very live. It's not boring for me. Sometimes it's boring to go into art school. Yeah. Well, it's really hard, isn't it, because... You either really like the work and wish that you thought of it or yeah. you don't like it. Whereas yeah. architecture, I guess it's always separate from your practice completely. Yeah, I'm on my toes. And it, um, there's a different conversation about scale that you have in architecture that you don't have in art school. Okay. Because you can be thinking on multiple scales simultaneously. You can be thinking on a city scale. You can be thinking on the scale of a site, of a model, of uh, an intervention, of a costume... Um, and in art school, I feel like there's I'm too aware of the types, and I immediately see people falling into ways of working and not and the institution not questioning it. I was at an art school recently, yeah. and um, there was just a kind of bad energy, <laughs> like there was something like it just wasn't vital enough in this particular department. I just felt like just all need to shake this up. It was just a bit bleak. Do you think that architecture this ability to think in multiple scales, is that inherent in the subject or is that is that because of the way that you feel like art might be being taught 
at the moment. It's or... part of the discipline in architecture is the scale is one of your key variables and the idea of looking at something as a plan and a section and mm. in this way of these are kind of native uh, drawing methods that aren't in art. They're design things. And it's not to say that the architects are further ahead than the artists. It's just that when you when you swap disciplines, you can co-opt things much easier mm. than if you are native to something. And Warhol is a great example of that, coming from you know store design, you know, window dressing into art. You're sort of liberated to be blunter or ruder or mess around with the conventions a bit easier. And I feel like particularly in painting departments, and I come from painting, that the, there's just too little consideration of where the work might go in the world or yeah. what it might be for, you know. Architects are at least thinking about the function of something. And art can be functional. The scale thing obviously applies very directly to your work because you, yeah. work, you do tiny kind of painted drawings and mm. then you have made lots of artist books which mm. range in scale from very small to very, very large. Mm. And then obviously you do things that are more like sculpture and things that are more like installation and things that have elements of performance. Yeah. When did when did that stuff start kind of getting into your painting practice? So I, um, as an undergrad, I started thinking about multiple language painting, which, you know, at the time it was people like Inca Essenhai that were very big and they are really thinking about... What were they doing? Sorry, um, so, Inca, so this is like late 90s, early 2000s. So she, she was making these very calligraphic sort of um, slightly japanese versions. In, uh, there was a lot of painting that, was, that Saatchi was showing when it was at Boundary Road. Um, uh, you know, 90s David Sally or Carol Dunham, but but there was a lot of conversations about multiple speed painting or uh, Fiona Ray as well, and this way of uh, thinking about a painting as a as a counterpoint in the sense that Bakhtin would talk about counterpoint or polyvocality. It inevitably meant that I wanted to add in more and more different voices and expand the range. So it was like, if you put that shape or colour or move, what's the opposite of that? Mm. And then and, and then that inevitably meant that it, it came out of the frame, out of the painting, into the world. And also, a big part of my approach to making is how can I d trick myself out of what I know? Yeah. And the best way to do that is to, when, as soon as I become slick at something, is to go and do the thing I'm really amateur at. So that might be learning garage band or learning a new package on the computer or using metal most recently. And then I'm disabled again. And the thing can be a bit wonky or shonky and a bit awkward and has a different directness. Yeah. So you just have to, I mean, I just keep trying to find a new thing that I'm not familiar with. And then architecture is an extension of that. Yeah. And and in the in the translation between those things, there's a a bridge that can be made, or a join, or a a transformation, or a slippage that's quite exciting. So I'm making these paintings at the moment that come from some prints and are going to go towards some prints, and I can see the leaps, and I can measure the moves mm. a bit more. So those are formal things but they also they also just sort of allow conceptual leaps as well uh, you mentioned maximalism mm. which is what i 
was handing out with the amount of <laughs> work that you have available online. Mm. It's not just that there's a lot of work, but you obviously have had a, a, a long enough career to have made a lot of work anyway. But the way it's presented on your website is this um, this kind of flat single screen. <laughs> the only hierarchical things are some things are bigger. So like yeah. more, more recent work is bigger. Yeah, some projects are bigger. But it's a very neatly curated archive. It's it's not mm. messy, right? So like mm. your max and obviously your installations are like this. You you can have like different kind of clashing, um, what's the word? Designs of wallpaper yeah. behind painting, which is then has sculpture in the middle, and then you're in a costume in between. But at no point is there any kind of like messiness. Mm. I think that's is that key to the way you use this idea of maximalism. That yeah, I'm not I'm not messy. I suppose the ma- the maximalism thing is, is is an ongoing investigation. Um, some people talk about this, but really they're talking about capitalism. They're talking, you know, you, you go and see some brightly coloured things and it looks like shop design. That's not maximalism to my mind. Maximalism is something about not putting, not privileging a thing by putting space around it. So... Um, for example, I just did a crit recently with some students that had made work in a week and had to curate it together, 30 students, and they'd all just put a, put a gap between everything. So nothing was in conversation, whereas maximalism suggests that you might acknowledge that there are, the, the, the space you're in isn't a white cube, mm. that there are plug sockets, but there also might be a hat stand or there might be a road I mean, my the analogy I use is what? How does the work stand out if you put it in the middle of a crossroads in Japan rather than in White Cube? Then it's a challenge. You know, it's too easy to put a thing in a room and it have value or be interesting. Mm. If it's the only thing you're looking at. Of course, we're all going to talk about it. But uh, for the thing to have to adapt to be with the keyboard that's here and the light and the Hessian that's on the wall, that they're interesting constraints and. Uh, I suppose in in doing all these displacement activities, as I call them, that I'm talking about earlier, that they're, they're sort of helping contextualise everything. So it's also about maximalism. I think is also partly about taking responsibility for where your thing lives in the world by saying rather than slot into a system that's already presented or uh, wait for somebody to come along and ordain you, mm. you'll just make the world for the thing. So you'll make the architecture for it and you'll make the song and you'll write the criticism and then and that's in 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 the end that's paid off but it's been a bit of a slog (laughs) but yeah the later work i've seen is is almost more installation and you've kind of done everything or worked with collaborators obviously but yeah but done everything in the show but how did you obviously that's you have to get to a certain level to be able to do that how did it how yeah, when you... I left the Slade, nobody wanted what I was making. Yeah. You know, Hiraki Sawa got signed up by James Cohan Gallery, and then I was making these ugly paintings with lumps on them and bits of trash and tat and books and Pee Wee Herman printouts. And people were, nobody was asking me to be in their group show. <laughs> Understandably <laughs> so. But I mean, I, it's sort of, it was partly that I hadn't resolved how it should be shown, but it was also that it was incredibly bombastic and um, not. Uh, it, it didn't play well with others, yeah. And and so over time, that's been a good thing to have. But it's been a, it's a slower process of negotiating your thing into the world. Yeah, I was working in my studio the other day, and I kind of it hit me that 
I have like a perfectly incoherent style. Mm. Like there's mm. at no point is do I make it easier for other. I'm making work at the moment which is almost impossible to photograph. It's made right. a photo of brightly coloured dots, and to take a photo of this, to kind of vibrate and bleed into each other. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I've just made it really. And I thought I was making work that I could put in a gallery. Yeah. At this point, but no. It's... And I think you have. I mean, obviously, yeah. in a very different way. You have a similar thing where, like, yeah. you kind of make it hard for yourself. Like even. Even the fact that I could look at all your work, I got to Shitney Cunstone's page and there's... I can't remember how many songs there are, but there's... Like, <laughs> Did you get dragged in to Bog to Walk or something? I had to just like um, stop with Shitney Cunstone because, yeah, yeah got to have a full kind of life. But I think that, um, you know, I do work prolifically and I make... Uh, it's all experiments. It's all like... And in order to make an experiment, you have to have constants and variables and then you just breed things off against each other and you make things then you get some some are good and some are bad i mean i'm sort of putting a mixture of good and bad on there and you can sift through it and decide i mean i've edited it a bit it's got my preferences but like yeah the, the inconsistency is is a reality of being an artist yeah. or being a human yeah, yeah. and um uh, what we see when we go to very curated shows is a complete tidying up and bias of something but also the artist can have bias over their own work and do it. So I think it's also about taking ownership of your own career. Yeah. That's partly what it's about, which I'd prefer. Can we talk about Capsid for a bit? Mm. It's quite a long-term project. It's it, it really about three years in length, and we're about six to eight months in. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. so it culminates right, start, in 2018. So it's a period of research where I get to hang out with them and learn what they're doing and then make a lot of stuff. Um, and it's a bit, it's a longer lead-up time than Alien Sex Club and it's yeah. a bigger grant, so it enables a lot more to happen. Um, okay, what's a capsid? So this is stuff that came out through Alien Sex Club. Yeah. What, what, you know, what we know of viruses from the media are very superficial rendi- renderings of them. They're the exteriors. And on a nano level, inside a virus, there's usually another protein shell called a capsid. And the capsid is a container for the for virus. I won't even say the virus, because I've started to think of virus as a messenger. It's not really a thing. It's a way of transmitting some, some an idea. That's all it really is. It doesn't exist. It's not alive. It's just replicating itself mm. frantically. But um, in the case of HIV... It has a very interesting capsid that's very strangely shaped, which has an odd geometry, but also the received wisdom about it is completely wrong. So at the moment, all the drugs work on the assumption that when the capsid gets pushed into the cytoplasm of the cell that it's infecting, that will immediately fall apart and somehow the virus particles, the two two strands of RNA and some enzymes, will get to the nucleus of the cell and transcribe new virus. However, Greg, who I'm working with, Greg Towers in his lab at UCL, they've shown that this couldn't happen because the cytoplasm is a really hostile place for the virus to live. And the, it will attack the capsid. And that's what it's designed to do. So it's a bit more like a sperm and an egg scenario where loads of virus will attach to a host cell and lots of capsids will get in, lots will die, mm. like a minefield, but the successful capsid will co-opt certain particles in the cytoplasm to hide it, so it cloaks itself, 
and it also helps get navigated to the nucleus and introduced to the nucleus to trick entry and then it squirts the DNA that it's been making en route into the nucleus to rewrite and reprogram the cell. So it's not this kind of like um, battle activity that we're that is kind of the narrative, no. the metaphor is very much about, but this is almost more like subterfuge or some kind it's of... It's totally subterfuge and it's totally uh, a negotiation between the two things. Greg would say that they've evolved together, so they're in conversation with each other. And a good analogy is, in a movie, if we land on a new planet and a virus attacks everyone, this couldn't happen because the virus has got to have evolved alongside the human. Yeah. They are, they're negotiating each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what, what's interesting is this narrative around the cloaking and the hiding and the way that it has to interact with the host to get done what it needs to get done mm. and also that there's a potential to intervene in the capsid so that whole structure is made up of hexagonal and pentagonal proteins that are opening and closing a bit like a a portal and it's got a, they've got a tiny hole in the middle that's sucking stuff in from the new uh, the cytoplasm to fuel it to move oh, okay. so if you could get drugs small enough to get inside the capsid you could explode it before it got to the nucleus so there's a whole set of implications that aren't really what Greg's doing, but down the chain of command of what this could lead to. But I'm interested in it because I'm interested in it for its own sake and also how you might think about how culture is transmitted. Mm. So what is the subterfuge in mm. how we all acquire our identities and how might you rethink identity politics using mm. these narratives? And also it gets me off the exclusively gay topic of HIV mm, which was okay. a good thing to put down and that was you know that just happened to be where it went with Alien Sex Club now it's moving on and I'm able to look at other viruses because other viruses have other kinds of capsids so this information is useful um, so it gives me lots of visual stuff but it gives me lots of narratives yeah and also within each of those things there's a million other bits of research going on so this has the potential to grow elsewhere two things strike me as um one, I think, I can't remember where I read it, but there's so much that yeah. I've read, but like the etymological link between mm. hospitality and, and hostility, mm. this idea that hospitality kind of includes the fact that the thing you're being hospitable towards can't be like your family or your, you know, you have to be hospitable to a stranger, basically. Yes, yeah. And then that strikes me as like a kind of obvious analogy between like the gallery and the <laughs> and the visitor. Like there's you're not a visitor if you're like the friend of the artist. Mm, so yeah. like you being the when you're when you're hosting your own work, you're a very yeah. generous host. You and you allow people to pass through you without you're not performing, you're not like drawing attention towards yourself, even it's though you're not might acting. Be dressed. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So you may provide a drink and you provide a like entry point into the show, which is almost always the objects and the yeah. installation itself. Yeah, I mean, the, the hospitality-hostility analogy within Capsid is really important for me, and that's something that the scientists are so amused by, but because they just don't think like this. Yeah. And those are the kind of ideas we're able to exchange because it's very much on that conceptual level of creative thinking that we can meet. So it's interesting that you've picked up on that as well. So that must be an artist's way of approaching this. Well, I think that's crazy because surely that... I mean, you started with the very good point that, like, the the narrative that is described in terms of viruses and infection is not only, like, a bad metaphor, but it's mm. just actually wrong and can mm. be replaced with a new narrative. Yeah. 
that is way more meaningful. And that surely would be a central feature. Of this is a cultural research, studies way right? of thinking. I mean, they could do a whole research project where they just swap the metaphors they're using yeah. and redo all the tests and see what comes up. Yeah. But this is not the way they they think. Yeah. But they might after a year. I mean, certainly we're affecting each other. So, you know, you could get Greg in and have a different conversation and see what my presence has done in yeah. reverse. But to go back to the hospitality thing, yeah, I mean... It's, it's performance in the sense of this is a performance or any going out into the world as a performance. It's just slightly heightened because I'm in a costume and there's a yeah. stage, which is a bar. But I hate acting and I hate going to the theatre and I don't want to put anybody in that position because it makes me feel uncomfortable. So it's more um, how can I be a receptacle or a bridge between you and the work, yeah. particularly if you're not a regular so, um, yes, the idea of the stranger is important, but also the idea of the non-expert is important. Mm. So we as artists, can all, we're all equipped to go and engage or disengage as we wish, but um, my mum or my godmother or some complete stranger off the street who doesn't regularly go into a gallery, I feel like I want to empower them to have a response. I mean, th th they might just have a hunch that something is good or bad and that might be interesting to talk about. Or at least they shouldn't leave without asking the question. Yeah, That's more important. I don't want people to feel stupid because it's actually not that complicated and it's more important to empower them to, uh, to know that this is just stuff. Do you think that's why you've... I mean, there's obviously loads of reasons why you would carry on painting, but do you think that's why you've, you've kept doing kind of figurative... Mm. things and painting and stuff because I think for a lot of like I know my my mum would much prefer if my things were on a wall and mm. so we, so not that she would like them more but so she would have a question that she knew would make sense yeah which, does yeah that make sense like, no it absolutely makes sense I think about this a lot in that um are we is it a more pragmatic approach to use forms that are how identifiable as art yeah. is that actually a useful thing for because you know but people don't know what a painting is yeah they, sure they think they know what a painting they don't but maybe you need to just tell them it's a painting in order to get the conversation going or something like this it's funny because i've been making a lot of paintings recently and I, I'm, I mean, I'm excited by them, but I've been posting them and people have been wetting themselves about them. I'm like, but hang on, like, what is it because I've not been painting, making a painting? Or is it just because it's a painting? Like, you think you understand it? Is that the hook? Went to a party and some friends of my boyfriend's were really into the new work. And I'm, and I'm thinking, why? Like, why is it this work? It's yeah. not, I don't think it's, I mean, maybe it is wildly better, but it's it's unlikely um, it's it's forms. People, think, yeah. you know, people want to know this is a piece of music, this is a play, this is a painting. I have this horrible sensation as well that at the moment a lot of it's not cynical on anyone's part. I don't think by the by the artist or the or the person who's excited about. But I think people are excited when someone who does work that is not on a wall and not a painting or or not identifiable as something some kind of obvious form then does that thing because it's like yeah. oh but they're also like a contemporary artist they're not some like reactionary painter who's yeah. just sitting like really annoyed that all these yeah. video artists are doing really well yeah so it's like okay to like it or something yeah but then that kind of it does speak to like a weird reactionary 
element. It, it, it's also, so the way I've been rationalising it through Shonky, for example, is thinking about authorship and people like to know that something is authored. So there's this idea of the, you know, the mark, this prevails. Mm. We might have all moved well beyond that, but, but other people will go into the gallery and want to know, did you make it? Now, we, we know that that doesn't matter, but it does matter on some kind of... So it's a sort of Brexit thing where, like, we need to bring people <laughs> like up to speed. Or yeah, it's like we need... To, I think that there's, the, there's a, like an art world conversation that's gone over there and then there's, like, a populist conversation yeah. that's over there. And it's I don't, I don't think it matters that there's... It's more about trying to bring them onto the same terrain yeah. to meet. That's why I don't... It, um, you can use the painting to then get to the other conversations. Sure. Um, also, you know, the the painting is odd because it's having the other conversations all the time. So, you know, the paintings are mutating because I'm, I'm cutting the metal or making the song. Those things are directly changing the painting. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we should disenfranchise people by not sometimes working in modes that they think they understand. Yeah, the idea that there is a form that is kind of revolutionary or radical is like, it's wildly out of no. Anyway, so there's yeah. no reason why painting can't be having those same conversations mm. that sculpture and whatever. Some this goes back to the architecture conversation. I think yeah. it's like, um, when when's it appropriate to use a form is a better way of thinking about it. So it's like, I'll often we'll often talk about a project that a student's doing and be like, well, you probably need a cross-section. That would be the best way of looking at... Uh, showing this idea mm. and it's more like oh so in this scenario this needs a song or in this scenario this needs a performance that's that i feel that that's more where it's moving in my mind mm. in order to explore this aspect of i need to make a series of paintings on this size and then you shift the game again and then you get some new information about what mm. it is you're looking at yeah let's talk about shonky this yeah. so this podcast it can probably um it can probably it's go out. out. It's all out in the world. No, now. no, but it can oh. probably go out. Um, I'm only going to start releasing them from like June. Oh, perfect! Brilliant. So I can launch it kind of whenever you want from Amazing. July or or when is it? When's the first one? October. October. Get, get it out in July or August or something. Yeah, yeah great. Get it out, okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can be as you yeah. can talk about it as much as you want. But um, but so you won the Haywood curatorial yeah. open which is incredible it's mad like congratulations thank you it's brilliant that grew out of the phd as well actually because oh, really? i was okay. in trying to theorize what i was doing like technically i really had to uh differentiate what i was doing from badness because really i you know <laughs> <laughs> we, i can say that to you yeah yeah the bad guy it's a it's a safe space for badness but you know i've always been interested in bad painting but i'm not it's not just to do with draftsmanship i'm I'm also yeah. employing craft badness, which is yeah. another layer of badness. That's interesting. So bad painting, because it's uh, an art... Th- bad painting has been heavily kind of theorised. Yeah, that, that yeah. Marsha Tucker did this show in 78 okay. called Bad Painting. Oh, right. wow. And it really established it. It was it was all about... in. It wasn't good draftsmanship. It wasn't classical draftsmanship. And it was also related to outsider art in certain ways of composing things. So it's it's got a particular slant on imagery um whereas shonky as i've theorized it also brings into play queer theory jack halberstam's ideas about um the queer art of failure Mm. and the idea that there might be something radical within the thing that is done amateurishly or approximately or with a the, the glitch or you know because there's digital equivalents of this where the mistake 
or it's partly to do with the order in which you edit something or because I, I'll often make the, the statement quite quickly and then it's a case of do I intervene in what I've done or do I preserve it? Mm. And often the thing you author first of all has the most emotion or it has a set of qualities that if you finesse it, it all, it all gets lost. So shonkiness is also something about keeping all of that live badness and risk in play. Um, and then there's the the subtitle of the show, Shonky, and then the subtitle is The Aesthetics of Awkward. Yeah. And Awkward is, uh, the Bad, Bad Vibes Club. Club loves a bit of awkward. Yeah, yeah. Why the word shonky, as opposed to yeah. just the awkward kind of... So I've used this word shonky for years, and some people know it and some people don't. I, I think, think it's actually it's like Scottish. A thing. Oh, is it Scottish? Oh, it's okay. maybe a northern thing. Yeah. Then. I probably have, My mum's from Scotland and I've probably got it from her. It's less of a southern thing, I yeah. think. And um, really, you know, you'd be like, oh, that's a bit shonky. And it just it just kind of does what it needs to or it makes do or it's a bit off. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it but it's not a, de- a derogatory thing necessarily. It's not about shoddy. It's not as bad. That's much more negative. Yeah. Shonky is also... There's something charming about the shonkiness <laughs> or something. And it... Um, so so I, I, I've used this very casually and I thought, this is about time I give this a place and try and work out what the hell it is I'm getting at. Mm. And I think that what I'm... What I've... The way I'm trying to explore it in the show is through other artists' works. There's 15 artists that I'm curating into this show and they're all, they're all using awkwardness in different ways. So Arakawa and Gins, who are this architectural duo that are both dead, one was American and one was Japanese, they made architectures that would trick you out of your habits so they would they were really obstacle courses in that they would hate that but they they had theorized this very heavily about how you could stimulate the immune system to extend life by making architectures that wow. were awkward so they built this house called the Biosclave house that's like um an inverted terrain where you have to climb down to the kitchen and <laughs> climb to the bathroom and everything's in the wrong place and all of the habits that you form in a space are dislodged and you're thinking and so that's one way of looking at shonkiness mm. that's a very formalized way someone like louise fishman who's an american painter that's not so well known here but she's really playing with abstract expressionism and taking it in a very lesbian queer female direction feminist direction and often making marks that you just go what the you know it's they're like they're on the edge it's not even it's about bad taste it's also about is this is this acceptable is this going to dry like there's all kinds of questions (laughs) about it yeah and and she's in her gosh i don't know how old she's now in her 70s maybe and it's quite it's it's not a, a look that has resolved in time. They still look a bit ugly. Yeah. And that's part of what's so exciting about them is that they're jarring and they make you... They refresh your eyes. So Shonky mm. is about... You know, when when I saw you that day at Open School East and we talked about queer, I mean, I don't, you know, I have an intuition that queer theory is a load of bunk. So, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm coming towards it rather than from it, if you see what I mean. Like, it's something that I'm having to engage with over time. So I wonder, yeah, so in the, in the press release, you don't use the word queer, but you do yeah. use the word Ben. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that cropped up. Which yeah. I thought was interesting because it's, um, queerness is, in the art world at least, or in the kind of theory world, is very much recuperated. It's like oh, yeah. uh, just a positive 
thing to it's 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 the it's de rigueur yeah you know you have to say it yeah that's why i'm so suspicious of it it's not that it's not real or true and it's a discipline i think that i mean this came up in the phd because i i didn't the queer text that i used came in quite late so there was something that i found on the journey Mm. i'm not theorizing from a position of queer theory it's something that i'm finding a join with i mean i just happen to make things awkwardly i'm awkward i feel awkward in the world you know i i, I wonder why people are looking at me and it's not that i've got shit up my leg but it's i've i've sort of dressed a bit like i put the wrong things together i can't quite get it to but do you think that's a I mean, I think you dress incredibly well. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would agree <laughs> with me. It's one but... bad vibe to another. Yeah. yeah. But I, I always think, you know, you're talking about like the, the costumes that you make and they're a strange mixture of hiding and displaying. You're mm. like, you're peacocking around because you're bigger than everyone else and you've got more mm. colours than everyone else. But at the same time, like it stops people being able to approach you in a normal kind of way, I guess. Yeah, smokescreen comprised yeah. of the truth. Absolutely. I mean, that's the position I want socially or that I've needed socially, I suppose. Um, and I don't know what that's about. I don't think I'll ever get to the bottom of that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I like to have my privacy as part of it. And also I find the celebrity artist a bit... I'm a bit suspicious of that. Um, but so, but I mean, I... I I think this awkwardness thing is a way of moving things ahead in all disciplines, and that's what we. Um, Shonky's telling us a story about something that's that's always been known in a way, but it's it's looking at it with queer theory as its cousin, and it's looking at formal things. It's also looking at um, uh, you know other strategies. You've got someone like Jacoby Satterwhite who's making those incredibly sort of lavish animations, but they've all they've got they're, they're sort of they're crunchy or there's bits missing or that you know that doesn't all quite result it's not slick mm. the shonky is the is the antithesis of the slick and it's against fabrication culture mm, it's about okay. putting the hand of the author or at least the rhetoric of the author back in the frame so it goes back to the conversation we were having it says okay we know that the author might be dead or that might not be important but if you, as an audience member, think that's important, we'll give it to you. Mm. And De- Benedict Drew will draw on a Wacom tablet and there'll be the, ha- the evidence of the hand in there. So it's just um, a device, I think, for animating a conversation. Mm. And people like handmade things. Um, you know, they want a bit of pottery. or uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's going to go away, in a way. Yeah. So I think it, I'm not... I don't think that it's a fashion move, although I think that... There will be, you know, and I think we are seeing a reaction against fabrication culture. Although now we're getting fabrication that makes it look shonky. What do you mean? Um, well, I mean, I think that there's more and more fabrication going on. Yeah, there's such yeah. an economy around that. Um, although God knows how it gets funded or who's buying these things, but that's a separate thing. Um, I, didn't, I deliberately didn't put any ceramics in the show. Because okay. I feel like that's very exposed and very well documented at the moment. The, like the current trend for yeah. ceramics, yeah. Yeah, and I don't have anything against no, it. I just not. think that it's it's almost a genre in its own right. It is, and it's and it's kind of every piece of ceramics that's shown in the gallery currently is shonky. It's not yeah. like there there had been like an unshonky ceramics that no. was popular before. No, it's like we need the slick ceramics show. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait for that to come. <laughs> that's the follow up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder whether that craving for the the mark of the hand or something is is so 
obvious in ceramics, and that's mm. why it's been the first thing to break with with the previous yeah. trend for slickness and fabrication. Mm. Maybe I don't. Yeah, know. no, I think you're right. I mean, for me, it was it was things like in alien sets when I would wallpaper a piece of honeycomb board, and it would buckle. And it was like, well, do you go with this or do you start again? It's like, well, you go with it. You know, mm. the materials dictate the response. And, and I'm more interested in the mistakes opening up another inquiry. It's like you've yes. got to... Res- I, I like I like that play where it's a dialogue with the materials. So, for example, with these big fibreglass sculptures that I've just made in Edinburgh, the first layer of resin and fibreglass we put on and it rained that night. <laughs> And so it's on top of cardboard. So the cardboard sucked up all the water and it was minus one degree. So nothing cured. And I was having conniptions going, what the fuck? And then, of course, as soon as the atmosphere changed, everything cured very fast. But the objects had mutated under the conditions of the dampness. And it was, you know, somebody else would have gone, oh, I've got to cut that out and start again. And I was like, oh, well, actually, this is... This is workable. Mm. This is more interesting. They've kind of settled into a different shape that they feel comfortable in and found... So it's, you know, I sort of work with the constraints of the accidents. Yeah. Which, we, we you know, Francis Bacon, we all know that is a thing. But um, it's a, I think it's about empathy. And people can get a whiff of that off an object when they see it. Mm. They can tell whether it was loved when it was made. So that's partly what Shonk is about as well, is... Um, how those things signify between uh, author and viewer other less easily described qualities, mm. which in fiction or writing we, we can talk about the you know a lot more clearly. I think. What do you mean? Well, you know, we talk about the reader and the and the write the the writer, and and we can talk about it's sort of. Cl- I think there's more of a vocabulary for the space that's created there, or the the way the book becomes this intermediary zone because there's no... I mean, the object is not the object. The object is the way of animating the imagination. It, it, whereas it, with an object, there's a belief that it somehow has value as an object. Yeah. Which it doesn't. It's a book. It's an. It, it's it's only a thing to ignite the imagination as well. Um, and that's what's forgotten, I think, in making art sometimes. Yeah. So this idea that the the author or the or the artist has this very like direct connection with the object and that connection is somehow rehearsed or reperformed with the viewer through their viewing yeah. or something. Yeah. Or um the the value of the object is only its presence as an intermediary. Okay. It has no other it it, it can have market value, but it doesn't that's not its it, it, that's only because we made one of them. Yeah. Um, and that's what people need to remember, I think, is that it's only there to enable that conversation or that experience or that emotion to happen. Um, so this is the idea of, of function that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because like, Alien Sets can have a function in the sense of it was putting something on the agenda. You know, it was saying, oh, look, if I do this thing... It's it, it's as opposed to doing another thing or it's doing a thing differently to somebody. I mean, they're small moves, mm. but they're significant enough moves that they're political. Not in any grand way, but it's just like, let's put this at the centre of the conversation. And, and that's about all you can do <laughs> as an artist, I think. It's quite minor. But, I mean, I think that is functional. Yeah. And, I, and I think that the things I want to go and see 
are functional in that they're trying to change my mind or trying to open me up to new possibilities or that's a function um but that's just maybe not spoken about in that way usually yeah it's not functional as in you can drink out of it yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is my new show ceramics in, yeah <laughs> you can drink yeah Come i can't on. even drink out of yeah. that <laughs> Thanks to John for that conversation. Um, thanks to you for listening. I will be with you very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.